Right, are we ready then? Can we can we start? We're good now? to go. We're going. We're live. Right. right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Okay. Uh, I think... you shut up. <laughs> good lord. If I can accept this is a normal human emotion and that it will come and, and it will pass and I'll have tricky thoughts or feelings, um, I can start to make room for them. Hello and welcome to another fun-filled episode of 80% Mental, the world's premier sports psychology podcast. I think I can say that. Can I say that now? Yeah. We're a few episodes in. I think I can say we're the world's premier sports psych podcast. Um, my name's Dr. Pete Olushaga and Hugh Gilmore is here as well. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Pete. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Um, a few technical difficulties on this one, but we're, we're here now. Yeah. So, you look as if you're going to say something. So if you're one of our regular listeners, which I'm sure we have probably thousands of by now, um, you're probably familiar with what we're doing. Uh, but if you're new to the show, each week we start by asking a question about the psychology of sport. And then we set about trying to answer that question, normally with the help of some special guests who may or may not be experts. Um, this week's question... Uh, is one that I think will resonate with everyone, with athletes, with coaches, uh, parents, students, people going on first dates, whoever. And that question is, why do we get nervous and what can we do about it? And to help us answer that question, we've got not one, but two special guests who I can confidently say are experts. Uh, first of all, we have Dr. Josephine Perry, a sports psychologist and writer. Josie works with amateur and elite athletes and those in the performing arts as well. And we've spoken about the balance between well-being and performance a couple of times on the show already. Um, and Josie, well-being plays a really important role in your work. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really strong on the fact that you can't be a great athlete until you're a happy person and you you need to feel really good in yourself before you can go out and perform well and you've you've written a book as well on on sports psychology performing under pressure yeah yes so that was the book that I kind of wish I had when I trained of the the key aspects like you guys are doing of asking those questions about the the big issues in sports psychology and what you would do about each of those issues what kind of activities what strategies might you put in place so it was a book to answer all that stuff that I wish I'd have had when I was training. So a great resource for uh, for any students who are, who are listening, maybe. Our second guest is Joe Davies, a sport and exercise psychologist. Again, and Joe runs a private practice consultancy uh, focusing on sports psychology, well-being and personal development. Again, Joe supports all sorts of athletes from amateurs through to elite sports people uh, and works with a lot of junior athletes as well. And Joe, you work with the military as well, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So um, army sport athletes, um, predominantly the army boxing team and army target shooting team. Um, but there's also some elite individuals who are representing the army um, at a, a very professional um, level as well. Wow, awesome. So again, we're seeing different applications of sports psychology in different different environments. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we get to this week's question, which is, again, why we get nervous, and we're going to explore that in, in some depth, I think we should clarify up front that actually anxiety is something that we all experience from time to time. And I'm sure that we've all come across people who claim that they just don't get nervous, which we all know is complete nonsense because we all do. But I just wanted to kind of get that out there early on that everybody experiences anxiety. So 
we thought what we do today is introduce a little bit of a competition element to what we're doing. I can see some worried faces already. And we're going to have a quiz during the, during the episode. So we're going to have four questions that we're going to spread out throughout the show. And you can play along at home if you want to. But it wouldn't be a competition if we didn't have a prize. So the prize for this competition is that the winner gets to choose which of the losers does a 20-second freestyle rap about sports psychology. <laughs> okay, Pete, this has just reached a new low, but that's fine by me. I think this is going to be a high. <laughs> I sort of hope I get picked, but also, also hoping I don't get picked. I'm not sure where I'm at at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm it? just going to say, if you want your ratings to go through the floor, you ask a 43-year-old mum to do that. <laughs> I don't know. It could work out absolutely fine. Well, you, you, you know, added incentive to do well on the quiz then, I suppose. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, my first question is, like, how are we all feeling now? A, a little a little a bit excited, a bit apprehensive. Um, I definitely felt a bit nervous half an hour ago um, when I was first coming on. And actually now the hilarity of the technology going wrong has put me at ease. Um, but yeah, you know, Pete, when you said um, anxiety is an everyday human experience, I would absolutely agree. And Josie, Hugh, how are you feeling now that I've introduced the element of, of rap into today's episode? <laughs> Um, yeah, I am one of those people that tends to say I don't really get particularly nervous. Um, but yeah, th I think that would bring it on, certainly. Well, Pete, you know, not only am I great at rapping, I also am very good at quizzes. So uh, <laughs> I ain't got no problems here. Fair enough. Well, we'll see how, we'll see how we'll get Confident on. talk. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we kind of introduced that little element of competition and there's a, 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 a prize and something at stake now. So... You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. How is that anxiety maybe manifesting itself now? What are we thinking about? What sort of sensations might come up? How does anxiety actually manifest itself? I, I, I guess normally what we experience, which is is definitely what I experienced, Pete, when you started to introduce the um, competitive element and the consequence was both what we call uh, some cognitive anxiety. So some mindset uh, elements of anxiety, which is some thoughts around, oh, gosh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so there's already some uncertainty in my mind of what's going to come up. There's definitely some emotional thoughts around, Joe, you will look like an absolute idiot if you try to rap on a podcast. I might not. Let's see. <laughs> um, but, 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 but equally, there's, uh, you know, what we call somatic anxiety, which, which we define as some, some physiology changes in, in our body. Yeah? So I definitely noticed um, my heart race a little bit when you talked about the competitive element. And I think I've got some sweaty palms going on here, Pete. <laughs> So it's kind of typical, uh, you call them somatic symptoms. So how we perceive what our body's doing, the physiological responses, the butterflies, the sweaty palms, the, the, the kind of heart racing, etc. Um, mm -hmm, and then there's the sure. cognitive anxiety, the mental anxiety, I guess, the way you might think, the sort of self-doubt that maybe creeps in. Am I going to be a good enough rapper for the 80% mental podcast? Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, Josie, what about yourself? Anything to, to kind of add? I think actually... It it was a very clever way to introduce the subject because when we're looking at anxiety and looking at stress, that comes from seeing that there are stressors in our environment and not feeling like we're capable of dealing with them. And I can quite honestly say wrapping would be a stressor for me and I certainly don't have the capabilities to deal with it, to manage with it. And when you get to that point of realising you can't 
manage or cope with what's in front of you, that's when that anxiety kicks in. And it's certainly a big enough threat to me, to my ego, that I would start to have some of my anxiety kicking off. I would start to feel, um, yeah, definitely under threat that there's a fear of failure. There's certainly a fear of embarrassment, a fear of judgment coming along um, that would put me into that state of anxiety. So just while we're on that, I wanted to touch on the difference between anxiety and stress because people use that term fairly interchangeably, don't they? And people talk about anxiety, stress, nerves. In what ways are anxiety and stress different things? So I always explain it when I work with athletes that we have stressors, we have stress, and then we have anxiety. And so you may have many, many different stresses in your life. Whether we feel able to cope with them is whether we get stressed. So for example, Jo is phenomenal on a horse. She works a lot with equestrian riders. She's lived in that world a long time. So the stresses that might, the stresses she might see when she goes along to a horse competition, she can look around and go, yeah, I can handle everything here. If I turned up to that same horse competition, I would be utterly terrified. There is no way I could handle that. I've been on a horse once in my life when I was a child, never again. So I would have exactly the same stresses that Joe has got in front of her, but we would react incredibly differently. And to me, it would be a stressful experience. And anxiety is the reaction to that stress. So anxiety is seeing that there is a threat there and I don't have the capacity to deal with that threat. And so I want to run away. I want to fight it. I want to freeze and hide. Okay. So, uh, I'm curious, like we mentioned the terms cognitive and somatic, um, for a beginner, like what actually are those terms? They're big psychological words and are they the same thing or are they separate? In my experience, Hugh, they, they often occur together, but there is a distinction between how we would define them, right? So uh, somatic anxiety would be the physiological symptoms that we feel of anxiety. So that might be anything from um, my heart rate increases to I feel butterflies in my tummy, um, I feel hot and sweaty, my senses are on high alert. Cognitive anxiety, on the other hand, would be the mental elements of anxiety so that might be tricky thoughts that come like I don't want to fail I don't want to let my team down um, it may also be images that come up whether that is remembering a previous negative experience when I'm competing in sport that I you know I messed up I made a mistake in this environment or our mind may take us into the future and anticipate a worst case scenario yeah, so so me not qualifying today or me making huge mistakes today. Um, but but in my experience, often they occur together, not always. So some athletes we see have um, more cognitive or, or more somatic symptoms than others. And I think what makes it really tricky is when they often are occurring together, it feels like a vicious cycle. So your brain is telling you there's loads of stuff to worry about. You're under threat. There's things that could go wrong. You could make a fool of yourself. And that is triggering those physiological elements of your body. So you're breathing faster, your heart rate goes up, your muscles tense up because you've got that cortisol, you've got that adrenaline flooding your body. But because it's all flooding your body and your heart rate's gone up, that's your body telling your brain that something is wrong and there's something to be worried about. And it can end up in this really vicious cycle. 
I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that, Josie. I think something I commonly see in athletes is almost anxiety around anxiety. So I anticipate feeling anxious. I don't like that feeling. Therefore, I might avoid that situation um, that makes me feel that way. Or I might try and push those feelings away, which actually sometimes only intensifies those feelings. It's interesting that you talk about the two types, I guess, of anxiety being experienced together quite a lot and that they reinforce each other based on your experience do you think that there's one comes first or is it like a chicken and egg situation personally I don't tend to get much cognitive anxiety but I get a lot of somatic anxiety so I will feel that I am anxious before I realize I am and a really lovely technique I like using with people is we do a breathing technique but during that technique you start focusing on something that has made you anxious lately and then you start to listen out in your body of where you're feeling that anxiety and people can then get really good at being able to pinpoint where they feel anxiety in their body and that can become a trigger to realize when something's wrong and so it's really good in sport or the rest of life that if for me it's my my lower stomach I can literally pinpoint when that starts to ache hang on something's wrong I need to look through my to-do list what's making me worried right now because something clearly is and so it's a really good way to deal with kind of I guess longer term chronic stress in your life because you can feel it long before you've had that moment to sit there and realize what it is that's going on and that's something that anybody can who's listening can just try it's a brilliant technique and you just start with a usual, a usual breathing technique of slowing down your breathing. But after a while, after you've got into a good rhythm, really start to think about something that's made you anxious lately. And while you're thinking about it, then tap into where am I feeling this? So some people will be across their shoulders. Some people will start to get backache. Some people will feel it in their head. And quite a few of us will feel it in our stomach. But it's a really good way to understand where you notice stress so that you can pick it up a lot earlier than you might do if it was actually half an hour before the thing that's likely to make you anxious. One of the things that's interesting about your story, about where you feel your anxiety, is uh, I worked very closely with a a physio who uh, was preparing an athlete for the Olympics in Rio, and this athlete came in with back pain, and the physio assessed her and, and said there was nothing wrong with her back, and then turned around and said to her, look, I think we both know the problem is that you're pissed off and angry and annoyed about things. And uh, th- that happens to correlate with having a sore back. Um, and I suppose it's interesting how we can somatize our, our emotions and feelings into physical sensations. Um, yeah, it was just a random story. <laughs> It was a good one. I liked it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of that feeling, thinking, linking. I think... Uh... So, so, sorry, I think I butted in there. Um, but, but Josie's point, and I guess your point here is around this self-awareness, right? Like, like as an athlete, can I pick up on these things earlier so that I can process them, so that I can work with them, uh, rather than waiting until they build to a, a much more intense level and, and, and then I'm kind of in trouble? So I guess now is probably a good time to remind everybody um, of the impending 
competition uh, and to kick us off with one of the first quiz questions. Um, so question one, and you can write your answers down or, or just kind of try and remember them. Um, which footballer was charged with assault for executing a perfect flying kung fu kick on a fan in 1995. I'm not sure I need to write that down or remember because I have absolutely no idea. I'm, I'm, show, I'm showing my cards now. <laughs> and what, what I think we'll do is I think we'll have question two now as well. So question two, Serena Williams is the greatest athlete of all time. That's just without question. But how many times has Serena Williams won Wimbledon? I've got her autobiography on my bedside table and I've not yet read it. Timing. I can, I can make it multiple choice if, if you think that would be fairer. Yeah, yeah let's just go for it. Okay, fair enough. Oh, I'm not confident. <laughs> <laughs> and for a, for a bonus point as well, Serena Williams is second in the all-time wins in the ladies' singles finals. Uh, who's first? It's for a bonus point. Right, so how's that anxiety now? Yeah, a little bit elevated. My 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 general knowledge is is not great. <laughs> We've talked a little bit already about what anxiety is and about how it manifests itself. And interestingly, I just asked you, you know, as as we're getting closer to the prospect of, you know, the competition and we're going through some of the quiz questions, you know, you both said that your anxiety's elevated a little bit. So, I was just wondering, what why else do we get nervous? What what happens? What triggers anxiety? Um, I, I, I guess it it may either be based on previous experiences when something hasn't gone to plan and our, our mind remembers that, right? So our, our hippocampus, our, our memory store will remember a, a negative event and a, a negative emotional experience. Um, and if we go into a similar situation, um, then that may trigger some kind of nerves uh, for, from from the, it's called the limbic system part of the brain, the amygdala, and it's detecting some threat. Yeah, so this may not go well. It did not go well last time. So prepare for the worst. Yeah, so, so we have a stressor come up from a similar situation. So it may be, um, I don't know, a, a penalty kick uh, that was missed. And the next time that situation comes up, if it didn't go well, um, then the footballer's associating this next penalty kick with a, a previous negative experience experience i guess when i explain this to athletes i uh, borrow very generously from steve peters who talks about the kind of the idea of the chimp and i find it really really resonates well with them because it can feel very simple but once you get the concept it also helps you actually deal with it and handle it and so the the chimp theory breaks down our brain or our decision making elements of our brain into three areas so we've got our, our kind of computer that's sitting there in the background, whirring away, focusing on all the habits that we have that we don't really have to think about, which is very handy because it's something like 35,000 decisions we have to make every day. Most of them are minute. They're, my arm is itchy, I'll scratch it. If we actually had to think about those things, we'd never get anything done. So that just sits there in the background, working away. Then we've got our human, which is really rational and sensible and makes really good quality decisions, going back into our memory and finding out what works for us, what worked last time, what should we do this time? And then we've got our chimp. And our chimp is super emotional. It's irrational. It works incredibly quickly. So it normally gets there in front of the human. And it's triggered when we feel under threat. So the threats used to be when 
back in caveman days, things that would physically hurt us, like a bear coming towards us, would be very valid to set off our threat element, that amygdala, and make us respond very quickly, very emotionally. We don't have many physical threats now. Um, some of the athletes I work with do. I work a lot with cycling. And if you are hammering it down a very steep mountain, very, very fast, it is quite rational that your chimp's going to come out and tell you to stay safe. But most of the threats that we have in life are ego. So fear of failure, fear of judgment, fear of, fear of embarrassment, fear that we've put lots of effort into training for something that we might not achieve. And so when one of those things comes along, our chimp absolutely kicks off and it kicks off all of those physiological issues that we were talking about in our body. The reason I love using that kind of strategy for talking about it is it gives you some really clear things to do because you can get to know your chimp much better. We, with athletes, I'll often name our chimps. I even give them a little chimp key ring that squeals when you press it so that every time they feel their chimp coming out, they can squeal it and it, it gives them a real awareness of what triggers their chimp. Because once you start to get to know it and what triggers it, then you can put in place really good strategies to handle it a lot better. I'd just add to that, Josie, um, that I, I would use very similar analogies. And I think that psychoeducation with clients just allows them to normalise their experiences. So I, I kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of the clients that I work with will feel this fear of anxiety or that I shouldn't be feeling like this or that I cannot perform well whilst feeling some kind of stress or anxiety. And actually just understanding that that piece around how, how does my mind work and actually when I feel this um, stress that might lead to anxiety it's actually my mind trying to protect me it's actually that chimp area trying to keep me safe my survival instinct kicking off um, rather than something bad happening to me right and, and it's kind of recognizing that this chimp can be overprotective or over emotional um, and like you say learning strategies to manage that part of the brain rather than trying to stop that part of the brain uh, bringing these tricky thoughts or feelings because actually anxiety is just a very normal human natural emotion to feel and, and athletes will often come in almost wanting to shut down that chimp. And it's like, I don't want this bit. I, do, I don't want to deal with it. I just want it not to kick off anymore. And actually really understanding your chimp's looking after you. It's, we'll often explain it that if you've been walking down the road at night and someone is walking a little bit too closely behind you, your chimp is the thing that sets the hairs on the back of your neck that makes you become much more aware. How can I keep myself safe right now? I don't feel quite comfortable. We don't want to get rid of our chimp. We just want to get to know it. And, and that's why we name it. Um, and I love the names that people come up with for their chimp. Um, and we'll often joke about it, but it's really good that actually it separates it a little bit from us. So these emotional, irrational thoughts aren't us, they're our chimp. And that means you can have a conversation with it and almost pull it back down to earth rather than just kicking off every time you feel under threat. I think uh, it's it's interesting that you've talked about uh, the chimp model, and I suppose my big gripe with it is that it's uh, a metaphor, and that it, whenever you create a metaphor with somebody, the the problem is they can reduce the amount of control over the chimp uh, that they have, so they could interpret their chimp as as being out of control and essentially giving it agency within them. 
Um, but at the same time, I definitely see how it's a very useful uh, way of explaining the component parts of human experience. Guys, I have a I have a question. You know, you've talked about how um, there's different ways of people understanding their their somatic and cognitive side, and you've talked about experiences and memories as well. Uh, about how that can be a stressor, and then you've talked about the actual stressors and the demands. Um, what what works with athletes when you're you know at the coal face, and and does that differ you know in a competition arena versus in uh, a one to one client meeting two months out? Like, do you do you try and manage anxiety differently uh, in those different contexts? I guess in my opinion, it would be helping a client to build tools within their training environment and introducing something called pressure training. So exploring with that client, what are your stresses? Is it people watching? Is it penalty shootouts? You know, what what, what is it that stresses you and therefore introducing some of those demands into the environment? Um, granted, you can never completely create um, a, a competitive um, atmosphere within a training environment, but be, be you, you can introduce some stresses and therefore give the client the opportunity to practice some of those skills and tools that we're working with them on within that training environment. So they've got some tried and tested routines. In other words, feel, feel well resourced going into their competition um, that when anxiety shows, I, I, I kind of know how I'm going to manage it. This is, this is a tried and tested routine. And I'd say taking on from exactly what Joe said there, that if you then work with them to set the goal for that next competition to be not I'm going to win or I'm going to get a personal best, but I am going to handle that stressor better. They get a really good opportunity to practice it in the real world. And actually focusing on handling the stressor better usually means they do better because they're not stressed, they're not wound up, they're not anxious. So you can take what you do in the pressure training into actual competition too. Um, to give that extra practice in a way that will still help them perform well. And I would add to that, that how we perceive a stressor becomes really important in terms of our physiological and psychological response to that stressor. Uh, so there's some really interesting research into what we call challenge and threat states in psychology. Now, a challenge state would reflect an athlete who is looking at a demand or a stressor ahead in a really positive way. So uh, a swimmer might look at their final um, in terms of I feel in control, I've got a plan, I'm focusing what I can do and I feel competent uh, to swim towards my best in this race ahead. What's interesting is the physiological response underlying that. So that swimmer might before their final still have a racing heart, butterflies in their tummy. So a kind of typical stress response that we've talked about earlier. Yet what's really interesting is there's a decrease in vascular constriction or blood vessel constriction from normal resting levels. So therefore, blood is delivered really efficiently to the brain, uh, which is important for mental functions such as concentration, decision making, communication, etc. And it's also really important, obviously, for energy and oxygen to get around the body to muscles um, for physical movement, skill execution, etc. 
Now, the opposite to this would be a threat state. So perhaps another swimmer is looking at their final and feel under-resourced. Yeah, so they don't feel in control. They don't have a strategy. Maybe they don't have a race plan or they're focusing all the things that could possibly go wrong. And although their physiology might feel the same to them, they might still have a racing heart, butterflies in the tummy, those typical stress responses. Actually, what we're seeing in that swimmer would be vascular or blood vessel constriction from normal resting levels. So in other words, the amount of blood pumped from the heart is largely unchanged and therefore the delivery of the good stuff like glucose, oxygen to the brain and muscles becomes inefficient and isn't helping that athlete to perform at their best. So in a nutshell, if we can help athletes to feel well resourced in dealing with stressors, whether that is people watching, whether that is certain skill execution, then actually we can help them to look at those stresses or demands in a positive way and influence their physiology, which in turn can influence performance. Yeah, I'd, I'd say one of the most important pieces of psychoeducation you can do from that is actually to help people realise that nerves are good. And instantly we might think nerves are really bad, we have to get rid of them all. But actually, if people start to understand nerves are good because they get you to the right level of activation, they make you pumped up and in a really good place to go and compete, then they can start to translate them in their brain. Those feelings in our bodies get translated as, this is a good thing, I am up for it, I'm off to go and do fantastically, rather than, oh my God, I'm too nervous, I can't do this, I'm going to shut down, I'm not going to go, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think what we've essentially done in the field of psychology is we've pathologized what is essentially a perfectly normal emotion to have. We've kind of got this idea that anxiety is a really bad thing. We need to get rid of it. I remember playing with, uh, I'm not going to name him, but one guy who I used to play basketball with, basically in the 10 minutes before tip-off, he would be in the bathroom like three, four times in 10 minutes. And I remember talking to him one time about kind of pregame nerves and anxieties. Like, are you nervous? No, absolutely not. Don't get nervous. You know, but he had this kind of real stigma around being being nervous and being anxious about something. Like, that's not the sort of thing that you do if you're an athlete. You're not supposed to get nervous. You're supposed to be able to handle all of these things. So I think absolutely, you know, understanding that it's a perfectly normal, natural emotion to have um, is, is the first step towards being able to, to deal with it. For, for, for sure. I'd, I'd even go to the extent of saying to clients, your mind's doing a really good job for you. It's actually working really, really well. Let's not look at your mind as dysfunctional. Let's look at this um, th this stress you're feeling as actually your mind is working perfectly well for you. It's just being a little bit overprotective at this point in time. So... Um, again, just to, to kind of bring it back and check in on our own anxiety, we're going to have questions three and four now, which are the, the last two questions to decide who is going to, well, who's going to win and pick who's going to wrap. So question, question three, Great Britain won one gold medal at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Only one. Who won it? Is it is in the nation that won it? Well, no, as in the, as athletes. in the, the athlete, or Maybe. or athletes. Little little hint there. Um, Great Britain won one <laughs> gold medal at the ninety six Olympics in Atlanta. Who won that medal? Is Atlanta a real place? 
yeah i've been there actually yeah, okay it's uh it's lovely um question <laughs> question question four final question name all seven heptathlon events and you get a bonus point if you get them in the right order so name all seven heptathlon events bonus point if they're in the right order and again you can play along at home you can tweet us at epm podcast uh, or you can leave a comment on the website which is 80 percent mental all words.com I'll edit out all of this because it's not great for radio. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> how do you how, how do you test where we've actually written them down? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the honor system and <laughs> right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're all, we're all professionals here. So the answers to the questions, question one was which footballer was charged with assault for executing a perfect flying karate kick on a fan in 1995? And the answer was the one and only Eric Cantona. I got that right. <laughs> and, there was, and there was such Amazing. nervousness around that question. Oh, am I going to get I it right? I don't think I've got the I right know. answer. That cognitive anxiety whirring around there, but, you know, came through. Absolutely. Question two, Serena Williams, the greatest athlete of all time. I met her once, actually. Another story for another time. Uh, Serena Williams is the greatest athlete of all time. But how many times has she won Wimbledon? Does anyone anyone get this? I guess seven. I put six. Hugh? Uh, I put seven. Um, and that'll over to uh, win the with nine. You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, Josie, did you get the bonus point as well? With Navratilova. Navratilova. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. So we're all tied. Question three. Uh, I know. I, I know. I, I was six, so I'm George I'm one, one down, down now. Right. <laughs> oh, honestly, all to play for. Um, <laughs> question three. Great Britain won one gold medal in the Atlanta uh, Olympic Games. Who won it? Oh, Pinson and Redgrave. It was Pinson and Redgrave. Absolutely. Uh, oh, Joe, you're shaking your head. That. You didn't get that one. <laughs> I didn't get that. Can I ask who you did put? Um, I put an event rider. You probably haven't heard of Ginny no. Leng. Yeah, no, it wasn't it. Um, I. Ha- <laughs> oh, sorry. Go on, Hugh. Uh, who, who do you have? Eddie the Eagle. But, uh, I don't think that is right. <laughs> that is a great. It's, it's a great right. uh, show if you watch it. It is. It is a good film, actually. I like that. So I, I believe Josie's in the lead going into the final question. Yeah. So the final question was: Name all seven heptathlon <laughs> events. And a bonus point if they're in the right order. So anyone want to anyone want to have a go? I'll try a couple. So eight hundred javelin, hundred hurdles, high jump, long jump, shot put, and I can't remember the other one. Oh, close! We got six right. Anyone want to hazard a guess at the other one? I I have. Them I, I actually I have had them. exactly the same. I couldn't remember the seventh for the life of me. Hugh, you've got them. <laughs> so. The answers are in the correct order. 100 meter, hurdles, high jump, shot put, 200 meter, long jump, javelin, and 800 meter. He's done it. Impressive. He's got it right. And he's got the bonus question. Hugh, somehow, (laughs) you've, uh, despite Eddie the Eagle, you've come back and won. Yeah. Now, uh, I really liked, I really liked Joe's honesty. So, uh, the, the the decision as to who to rap is going to be dum dum dum. Off you go, Joe. Then 
<laughs> uh, now or later? What you can, what we'll do is what you can do it now. Uh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll put in a little beat behind it in yeah. the editing yeah. uh, to make it sound professional. <laughs> so you can just spit a few bars for us. Okay, am I going to be allowed afterwards to decide if this actually makes a podcast or not, yeah? We'll see. Um, <laughs> I signed away my rights now. <laughs> it's, it's all gone. <laughs> be- before, you, before you start, though, Joe, before you start, though, yeah. just tell what, what's your anxiety doing right now? I, I think I think my my chimp is saying, Joe, you're gonna look like an absolute fool. Don't do this. But there's part of my rational brain almost going, "What, Joe? What have you got to lose? You probably already said something daft, so you may as well go with it." <laughs> um, my somatic anxiety definitely. I feel like actually um, the backbeat is going to be my heart because I, I I feel like that that's that's pumping pretty well right now. But yeah, you know, let's give it a go. Let's see. I might only be able to do ten seconds. That, that's let's see where this goes hit, hit us with whatever you've got <laughs> i'll just wait until hugh's finished answering his phone sorry it's not even my phone i've just hung up with somebody <laughs> randomly who's bringing it to my other half spice <laughs> someone do me a beat someone do me a beat yo yo We interrupt this program to bring you an important public service announcement. At this point in the recording of the show, sports psychologist Joe Davis did actually perform a rap. Unfortunately, the police turned up, arrested Joe for crimes against hip-hop, and confiscated all recording equipment. The recording and Joe were subsequently returned with a warning that broadcasting the rap would constitute a criminal act. However, the makers of this program would like it to be known that if by the end of the week they get 500 shares of this episode, they will risk arrest and let you hear it. So if you want to hear Joe Davis rapping, go to www.80percentmental or at EPM Podcast on Twitter and share this episode. You won't regret it. Well, actually, you might. But do it anyway. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing, you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take the time to give us a lovely review as well. Um, Don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or check out the website 80percentmental.com. And 80% mental is all words. So we've kind of talked a little bit about strategies for managing uh, somatic anxiety, cognitive anxiety. just kind of bring it back to sport. You talked about a couple of the things that you use with, with clients, with athletes, but what are some of the other strategies that you might employ with athletes who are experiencing performance anxiety? I, I mean, jo- Josie, you talked a lot earlier about uh, balancing demands with resources, and, and that's certainly actually a model I would draw out with a client or athlete sat in front of me um, and, and almost look at this metaphorical set of weighing scales, right, whereby we want to feel well-resourced and we want our resources to balance with the demands or what we're setting out to do. So one proactive strategy I would use would be to talk with an athlete around 
what kind of goals are you setting? You know, are you putting confidence into goals that you can personally influence, if not control? So we'd, I would call these with clients ingredient goals. So rather than setting um, an outcome goal, uh, such as winning or meddling, which may depend on many, many variables outside of your control, can we start to set ingredient goals um, that are in keeping with what we can influence? So that might be to do with our technique, our strategy, our, our race plan, for example. Um, and equally on that side of our weighing scales, I would place values. So what as an athlete do you want to bring into per- in terms of personal qualities to this situation that you can put confidence in? What kind of person do you want to be? So whether that is disciplined or focused or um, uh, it, it showing my passion or showing humility or, or, or sportsmanship. Um, what kind of values do you want to bring? Because you can always move towards values even when the outcome is is not going your way um so so that that would kind of be that that one side of the scales the other side of those scales of course is the resources so how can you as an athlete um prepare yourself to the best of your ability what kind of experience does experiences do you have that help you feel ready um who in your support team can you work with to feel well resourced and and what strengths are you taking into this situation so so in other words we're trying to influence either uh physically the reality of that athlete's resources and or their also their perception of their resources because sometimes we'll come across people who um can can be the most well resourced athlete in the world in terms of their strengths and experiences and preparation but but they don't necessarily believe that so actually one of the most useful proactive strategies I find is helping an athlete set really realistic, personally controllable goals and thinking about the values that they can always work towards and they want to bring to a situation and, and getting them to balance that with, okay, what resources do I have that make me feel ready uh, to put trust into my performance? So almost, Joe, you're kind of preempting anxiety occurring by looking mm. at you know how do we avoid it in the first place rather than managing it when it almost inevitably comes yeah the sort of uh, proactive strategies yeah yeah absolutely and I I can go into it into reactive ones in in a moment but but certainly from from a proactive point of view we're then helping that athlete to look at uh, this situation as as less of a stressor right A, a stressor doesn't have to be a stressor unless I perceive it to be so so actually when this stressor occurs um there's a positive stress we're going into that challenge state rather than that threat state that I spoke about earlier I think we can also take those values that Joe talks about and use them really proactively to look at not trying to fight anxiety the whole time. So what we naturally want to do is get rid of it and shoo it away and it doesn't exist. But actually, if we can be really honest with ourselves that it does exist and that's perfectly okay, and we don't have to rationalise it and we don't have to try and squash it and bat it away... We just have to accept that it's there and accept that we might well be feeling anxious because this competition really matters to us or qualifying for the next thing we want to do is really important or this exam is going to change our lives whether we pass or fail rather than trying to get rid of it kind of go yeah it it, we're anxious because it matters and that's okay but rather than trying to override it and get rid of it Let's look at those values that Joe was talking about of what really, really matters to us and almost place those values over the anxiety. Because if we focus on the values, I really, really want to do this um, because passing this exam will get me into a university I'm desperate to go to 
or qualifying here means I get to wear GB kit for the first time in the age group team. Knowing our values and how important that is means we can override the stressors and override that anxiety. And I often use the example of, um, I, I do triathlon racing, not very good, I love it, but I'm, I'm not great at it. I'm very easily led into wanting to quit halfway through. But what matters to me most in the world, my biggest value, is my daughter. And I want her never to give up and I want her not to be like me. I want her to strive to always finish everything she sets out to do. So what kind of message does it give her if I quit halfway through something? I, the last thing I want to do is get home when she looks at me and goes, where's your medal, mummy? And me say, oh, I didn't finish today. And so being able to remind myself of that value, that I want her to be proud of me, means I can override every single negativity that's going through my head in a race because I am going to finish because it really matters to me that she sees that's what you do and that's a good example for her. And if you can draw those things out of athletes and really help them see what what drives them, what are they passionate about, what's their purpose, that really helps them accept that the anxiety is going to be there but not have to fight it all the time. I, I think I think it's a great point, Josie, and, and, and kind of when I talked about this kind of reactive um strategy i would work very similarly around helping athletes to accept anxiety will will come and it will go and it will pass um and being able to make room for that anxiety rather than trying to get rid of it like there's something in psychology called this ironic processing effect and as soon as we try and get rid of something it's almost like our mind turns into this google search engine so if i tell myself to get rid of anxiety don't have those thoughts don't have those tricky feelings my mind will almost search for those have i got those thoughts yet are those feelings appearing yet and and, and almost it, it's like trying to ignore a really annoying sound right the more i try and ignore something the more intense and louder it becomes whereas actually if I can accept this is a normal human emotion and that it will come and, and it will pass and I'll have tricky thoughts or feelings um I can start to make room for them um and and, and I very much work from something called an acceptance and commitment therapy approach which is very much in keeping with what we're both talking about around can I accept that emotions will come and pass but can I commit to my values that are, are really important to me that, that I can always choose to move towards so you know a, a way I might put that to an athlete in very very simple terms um, would be you know can I breathe around a tricky thought or feeling can I move around a tricky thought or feeling am I, am I in control of my body right now um, and if I can breathe and I can move then I'm also managing my focus and if I can breathe and move and focus then I'm ready to go out and do what I want to do and, and that's quite a helpful uh, place to be grounding myself within. You know, it's it's very interesting. You both talked about values, and then you've brought it on to a therapeutical approach uh, through using ACT. Uh, one of the things that I, I prefer to use is REBT and more of a cognitive behavioral approach. I think it's it's worth sort of just talking about briefly and and maybe exploring the differences between the two. So how I tend to approach uh, athletes with anxiety. So if an athlete's at the start line of a race and they feel anxious around those times. What I'll do is I'll educate them along how when when they're uh, it's Christmas time and they're waiting, you know, outside the living room to get their presents to see did Santa come. I ask them to tell me how how excited felt, and they talk about they had their heart rate going, they had sweaty palms, they were jittery and full of energy, 
And then I'll say, right, you're at the start line. What are the physical feelings of that? And then they go, well, I've got sweaty palms. I've got my heart rate's going. I feel jittery and full of energy. And then I explain that the two things are exactly the same. It's the adrenaline rush you get from flight or flight. And the the difference is in one of them, you're going, I'm under threat. Another one, you're going, I'm excited and ready. And if you if you appraise it as being, I'm excited and ready, and now I've got adrenaline, which is going to make my muscles uh, contract faster so I can run faster, then that's actually them nearly getting like a superpower at the start of a race or a competition. I mean, admittedly, that's just one approach, but that's more like a cognitive reframe technique, whereas your approaches of going towards like values, look, regardless of the outcome here, who are you and, and what do you want? I mean, there's a very different, um, two very different ways of approaching dealing with anxiety. Have you any thoughts on like which is best? And would you would you always do your way or do you do other ways? Uh, and that questions to both of you. I definitely started more of your approach and I've definitely moved over more around towards acceptance and commitment. I, I guess the athletes I enjoy working with most, I'm working with them on a long term and it's not just about fixing something, it's about really developing them as an athlete and to get those real benefits of developing yourself as an athlete it's about more than learning some really cool tricks to feel better when you're going off to compete it's about feeling like the whole athlete that there's more to you than just your sport there's a real purpose behind what you're doing and I've really found that understanding that purpose and those values can be incredibly powerful so for example a friend of mine who's an athlete um was doing an Ironman race in France a couple of years ago and the, the um, seat on her bike fell off. It literally snapped off and she still had something like 40 miles to go on the bike. And, and most of us at that point would stop. It's, our bike's broken, we can't do anymore. She didn't, she stood up and she still managed to pedal standing up all the way to the end of the bike section. And then she ran a marathon at the end. And when you say, why did you do it? Her goal wasn't, I wanted to be the fastest iron woman in the UK, which it did make her, she's 74. It, but it wasn't about the, I wanna win my age group. It was because the reason she wants to win her age group. And she is a passionate advocate for older people being active. And she runs a charity that gets older people being active. It helps deal with loneliness, loneliness issues. It helps deal, um, with not enjoying your life as you get older. And so she knew that by finishing this race, it would give her great publicity, it would give her that story, it would get people being more active. And so she knew that's why she did it, she had a purpose, and that purpose drove everything she did. And I find the real beauty and the, I guess the privilege of being a sports psych is that you can work with people on those journeys. And when you when somebody comes back to you and go, I've, I've worked out my purpose, or I've clicked, I know what my values are. That's probably the most satisfying moment I ever have as a sports psych. So it might be quite selfish working in that way, but I also find it can have a real, really good benefit for people. I, I, guess, I guess I'm reflecting on what both of you have said. Like jo Josie, I think um, that part of the beauty of values, um, kind of as, as you've insinuated is like, we can always move 
towards them they're ongoing you know goals we tick off and either you know we they're outcome based we reach or we don't reach whereas values are something that we can continue to move and strive towards and so um they're a very grounding place to be changing someone's perceptions almost of their physiological symptoms you're going right I've got someone on the start line that they're, they're feeling some somatic or some cognitive anxiety or can can we reframe that and and I'd say actually yeah I, I would use that approach you know um because it's a, along similar lines of understanding the biology you know okay my mind's trying to protect me um can can I relabel this as my performance state or these physical feelings I feel as I um, you know I'm competition ready um it doesn't have to be a bad thing that I'm feeling this racing heart or butterflies in my tummy as long as I'm in this challenge state where I feel well resourced to go about what I'm going to do so yeah I, I, I would say I certainly don't disagree with that approach at all and, and would be an advocate of that um, I think the danger we might get into sometimes in, in my experience from perhaps previous approaches I've taken is trying to uh, almost collude with with an athlete that yes we're trying to diminish or we're trying to reduce anxiety because then we get into this danger of um, that individual feeling like they're doing something wrong when they get anxious and actually like we've kind of reiterated throughout this podcast um, anxiety is a very natural human emotion to feel and so as soon as we start agreeing with clients that our goal is to reduce anxiety that becomes problematic because as soon as I start to feel anxiety this is wrong you know I'm doing sport wrong or I'm doing things wrong um my goal would always to be build flexibility around anxiety so it's interesting that you you kind of talked about that and and again I'm kind of my approach to work is kind of based on mindfulness acceptance and we spend a lot of time thinking about the stupid stuff that we've just done and what's going to come up next what's going to happen in the future and we kind of very rarely in the present moment and that's kind of where we need to be and that's what mindfulness acceptance helps us to do so i think focusing on the reduction of anxiety what we're actually doing is we're self-monitoring we're thinking okay well am i anxious now what do i need to do about it okay how anxious am i now now what do i need to do about it and it takes us away from being in the present moment mm. which i think which is where i think the mindfulness acceptance approach is really really useful having said that what do you do and I don't know if either of you who have ever kind of had experience of this, but what do you do when an athlete's anxiety is so intense that they they just can't function? So paying attention to their anxiety is all very well and good, but when their anxiety is resulting in them physically shaking when they're trying to, I don't know, hit a snooker ball or serve a tennis ball, you know, what do you do then? Because surely we do need to bring it down a notch. Yeah, I, I think that's a really valid point, Pete. And, and I would come back to um, grounding exercises um, and working on, for example, um, some kind of somatic relaxation technique um, inbuilt within mindfulness. So that might be um, a breathing technique. So we know that when we slow our breathing, um, when we focus on a, a calming breathing rhythm, um, that we can start to change the intensity of some of the somatic symptoms we're experiencing um we might look to um equally uh progressive muscle relaxation for example which, which incorporates um intentionally uh, physically creating some tension and, and then releasing it so so I agree with your point around sometimes the intensity of anxiety can disrupt uh, performance and in that case we might want to combine a mindfulness approach with some kind of uh, somatic or physical relaxation techniques yeah yeah I'd agree with all of those I would also over a longer term start to really work with them on boosting their overall confidence so that they have 
evidence that they can go back to in the moments when they are working rationally and the anxiety isn't taking over to remind themselves, I've done all the preparation I need to do for this. I've put every effort in that I could possibly do. I've practiced, I've worked hard, I've done this 10 times over before, I've done my imagery, so that, that they've got, when there are moments when they can think rationally, they've got lots and lots of evidence that's in their face, it's really high up in their memory to remember they don't need to be feeling anxious. And actually, you've made me think of something else, Josie, kind of combining that with this, this whole identity piece and putting some perspective on a sporting performance and I I will never ever look to diminish an athlete's ambitions or goals if they say to me I want to go and win a medal or I want to quite qualify for the Olympic Games awesome let's work towards that but equally I'm always really interested in in this holistic approach with an athlete around their whole identity as a person Um, and it relates to what you said earlier about working with a whole person and their values around well, what else in, in life is important and can we put some perspective on this like um, I, I'll give an example uh, one of the army uh, target shooters that I worked with had a really really helpful perspective uh, at competitions and actually he didn't really show much anxiety and when we had these conversations about it he said it's not life or death I've been in Afghanistan, I've been in war zones, I've been, you know, nearly shot, my mates died next to me. This shooting competition is not life or death. And so actually being able to put some perspective on things and and looking at life as a whole and what this competition means in terms of my, not only my sporting journey, but my life journey, I think can be a really useful holistic approach to working with someone. Pete, do we have any final questions? Because uh, this has been an enjoyable podcast. It has. It's been it's been fantastic. So I wanted to ask you if you're if you're a coach or if you're working with a coach, how would you know that an athlete is experiencing anxiety? What are the things that you can look out for? Because you know, like you say, cognitive anxiety is that sort of mental anxiety, the thought. So we don't know what's going on in an athlete's mind. And the somatic anxiety, sometimes we can maybe pick up on some of that, but other times, you know, we can't. So how do you know that the athletes that you're working with are anxious? What can you look out for? Often when I work with coaches, they will say the athlete doesn't perform as well in competition as they should from their training. And that tends to be quite a big indicator that there is something going wrong cognitively when they get to competition. And so that seems to be the biggest thing that coaches notice. They perform phenomenally in the numbers they give in training. They perform really well in practice, but they never live up to what they should be doing when they get out on the pitch. Um, And the other thing I often notice with people that have a lot of anxiety around performance is the use of the word things like should or I must. And if you can really listen to specific language, that is them trying to live up to certain expectations that they've either set themselves or they've heard other people talk about them and where they should be, that can be a really big clue that there's probably some kind of high-level anxiety going on there. Yeah, I think that's really useful. That's, that's really fantastic advice. Uh, Joe, anything anything from you? 
Yeah, I, I, I would only reiterate Josie's really good point around noticing inconsistencies. So, you know, coaches will tend to know these athletes really well as as people as well as the, the sports person so you know does this person tend to be really chassis noisy like really part of the team leading uh team chats um do they suddenly go into their shell uh become very quiet very backward uh isolate themselves uh in a competitive situation so I guess in some respects, we can kind of use those classic fight, flight, freeze responses to frame this. So, you know, are we seeing an athlete uncharacteristically going to fight response? So maybe more snappy, um, maybe that sort of try too hard, over aggressive approach. Are we seeing this athlete go into a flight response? So are they feigning injury? You know, are they trying to come off the pitch? Are they trying to avoid uh, certain skills? Um, or maybe a freeze response to this athlete just suddenly look completely overwhelmed? Um, and rabbit in the headlights and just incapable of making decisions so it's kind of looking for those inconsistencies but I think the fight flight freeze response can be quite useful um, in, in just noticing uh, certain symptoms of anxiety as well and then I suppose the next question would be you know what would you what would you encourage a coach to do about that if he's noticing an athlete's anxious but the athlete's not saying so or not coming forward you know how would you encourage a coach to maybe handle that situation um, encourage opportunities to talk about it and and I think the the biggest influence I've had on, on getting people to open up about anxiety is actually to normalize it so that piece we talked about around normalizing how the brain works and actually everyone feels anxiety and we've got this chimp or danger detector limbic system whatever we want to label it as that detects threats and dangers in our environment so it's perfectly natural that as human beings we feel um, emotions such as anxiety uh, in, in whatever shape or form uh, and so that normalizing and inviting encouraging opportunities to talk about these things um, would would be my first port of call and I'd add to that don't try and pull them aside and talk about it one-to-one -one, because that feels really defensive it feels like there's something wrong with you but if you can have group chats about it and you do team workshops, that really helps with that normalising because everybody then starts talking about how they might be feeling. And because everybody gets some level of anxiety, it really helps you to realise you're not alone and you're not the only one feeling like that. And so that can help with that normalisation. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, before we go, Josie, you've got a new book coming out. Is that right? I do. Um, well, I've got two. Um, so in October is a book called The Psychology of Exercise. And so it's, it's not on the sports side at all, but it's looking at what is more likely to motivate us to exercise and what those barriers would be. And it breaks it down into, there's a, there's a chapter on the theories, um, but then it breaks it down into psychology of exercise for children, for teenagers, for adults, for retirees, for those with health conditions and for those with exercise addiction. So it's a real kind of go-to book for anyone working in healthcare or coaches or, or PTs trying to get regular people exercising for some, some good ways to do that that are all really evidence-based. Awesome. And, and Joe, your rap CD is coming out by Christmas, is that right? Yeah, Christmas release. It's, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a hit. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. I've, I'm backing myself. <laughs> I'll buy it. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. <laughs> Out of pissy, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so thank you uh, so much to our guests today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Josie. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Joe. Yeah, really good to come online.
And as always, thank you, Hugh, as well. No bother, Pete. I'm glad I was here. I'm glad you were here as well. <laughs> You're he supposed to be here. <laughs> I think... <laughs> thank you, Pete. <laughs> You're, all, you're all very welcome. Um, okay, so so we, we've we've covered quite a lot of stuff in today's episode, and I hope that our listeners have found it useful. We've talked about what actually happens when we get nervous, and we've discussed some of the ways that anxiety manifests itself. So the cognitive anxiety, the thoughts, the self doubt, the worry. We've talked about the somatic anxiety so the the physical sensations or the, the perception of those physical sensations the butterflies the shortness of breath etc etc and quite interestingly in the first part of the show our guests experienced anxiety in different ways as well so demonstrating that not everybody experiences it the same way the other thing was that as the show went on and as the prospect of performing a freestyle rap grew closer the anxiety pattern shifted and changed so actually we got more anxious as as competition or, or, or uh, whatever it is that we're anxious about gets nearer, but then it kind of disappears a little bit as well once we actually start doing it. So we learned what we can look out for and what we should, shouldn't do about anxiety, uh, what we can and can't do. Um, and we heard about various techniques to cope with it and manage it and just to sit with it, to sit with that discomfort of being anxious as well. So I hope you enjoyed what you heard on today's episode. Uh, please do subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and leave us a fantastic review if you can spare the time to do that. So thank you very much for listening and I will see you next time. I won't see you. It's a podcast.